0: Greetings and welcome to Beetle Stuffology, two old friends sit about and talk BS, Beetle stuff, on a track-by-track basis, pretty much for the sake of it. My name is J.G. McQuarrie, and I'm here with my co-host Andrew Deacon. Say hi, Andrew. Good day, Sunshine. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, thanks. How are you doing?
1: I'm, I'm fine. You know, it's like I went for a slightly peppier opening there. I think that's because I've uh, recently started a Beatles Stuffology Instagram account. And my word, that is so much more positive than the old Twitterverse, which is... Uh, um, which Beatles Twitter's fine, but the rest of it is just becoming an even greater cesspit. So, um, yeah, yeah. So I'm all I'm all happy and Instagramming.
0: Well, that's lovely. That's I'm both happy to hear that you have been full of the joys and that you've been able to start an Instagram account. Excellent way of shoehorning that in at the start of the episode. Yes. Top work.
1: Although it won't make a huge amount of sense because by the time this episode's go episode goes out, the Instagram account would have been up for about four weeks. But well, you know,
0: let's let's not let's not let's not quibble. And you know, if we're talking about the socials, as I believe young people do say these days, <laughs> yeah. uh, we might as well. Oh dear, uh, we shall well just play over uh, the your, our our usual. Uh, you can really get a hold of us section, which means we are Beatlesstuffology at gmail.com. We are uh, on uh, the flaming dumpster fire that is Twitter at Beatles underscoreology. Um, you can find Andrew's blog at stuffology.co.uk and you can find mine at jGmacquarie.scott. Lovely. Right, this week we are talking about I Feel Fine. So, um, do you? Um,
1: yeah,
0: yeah, I do.
1: That's good. I do. Um, yeah, I won't get into this too soon, but um, there will be a sense of repetition the repetition coming from when we were talking about A Hard Day's Night, I think I mentioned then that there's a run of Lennon songs that are kind of both underrated and overrated, that are perhaps incredibly familiar. Um, and as a result, they perhaps haven't retained the same uh, kind of um, you know, hold on me, apologies, that others have. Uh, and I sort of categorise it as, help me, I feel it's a hard day's tripper. Um, it's it's kind of kind of those sort of um, um, songs that are really um, really good, but perhaps I've heard them a bit too much to be really passionate about them.
0: That's fair. That's fair. I would narrow. I would narrow it down slightly to three songs. What what I like to call the Lennon triptych, for no particular reason other than the fact that I'm unspeakably pretentious. Uh, which is this. I feel fine. Uh, Ticket to ride and day tripper. They're all constructed very similarly. Uh, they're all built around very similar kind of chord patterns. They're all built around you know a central riff, um, and they all feature you know a generally decent Lennon vocal. So, yeah, I, I think of those three songs, I would say this is probably the least of them. That doesn't mean to say that I think it's a bad song. I don't. I think it's a good song. I think it's fine. But it still feels like the first part of something that Lennon will get better at, if not necessarily massively better at.
1: Okay. And that's the episode, folks.
0: <laughs>
1: no? You want more? Okay. All right. Fair enough. Where shall we start? Um, I suppose what's important for for us, if you're one of those people who who recently have been seemingly going through and downloading episodes and hopefully then listening to them in order, is that you'll know that um, we've effectively finished. Well, we have finished with the first half of 1964. We've finished with all the songs that they were recording during a hard day's night before they go off on uh, this this momentous world tour first with Jimmy Neckle and then with the recovered Ringo Starr and then they're back in the studio and actually when they come back into the studio in the second half of 64 they start recording um, Well, Beatles for Sale we'll say no more about Beatles for Sale um, until we get to it but this is actually towards the end of that session and and clearly the Beatles um, are aware of the fact that they need to have a single uh, to go out. I suppose there's a possibility that Eight Days a Week could have been that single. Um, maybe even McCartney thought that the B-side She's a Woman could have been that, that single. But, but whilst they're recording it, Lennon has come up with this riff um, he, and he's played with it. And then on the 18th of October 1964, it is the fourth song they work on that day. Now, here's one reason why this is an amazing song, and that's because just before this the third song they're working on that day is the remake of what i've written down here as is mr bloody moonlight um now i know there are some performative (laughs) people out there who have decided to to stand up in defense of mr moonlight good luck to them that's fine they will have to to plead their case when they meet st peter at the pearly gates that's fine but what's interesting for me is that it's the second day they've worked on mr moonlight it's what is referred to as a remake of Mr. Moonlight because there's something about it that they, they haven't actually been successful with. And yet in this period, some of the songs that really work are the ones that they do quickly. It only takes them nine takes to get I Feel Fine Right. They had to work on Mr. Bloody Moonlight over two days. What does that tell you?
0: Well, it tells me that this song is a bit of a knockoff, or that they really, really wanted to get Mr. Bloody Moonlight right. Um, but I don't know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> don't know whether oh, that was something that oh, was oh. completely successful. Or, all right, yes, there may, there may be a third option lurking in the background there somewhere as well. It's funny, it's one of those songs that I think, you know, it is obviously, it's based around, uh, you know, very simple uh, chord progression, but it's the riff that really anchors it and it's interesting to hear the way that that's delivered um and again particularly uh compared to um the the riff and Ticket to Ride which is incredibly simple it's just it's just a picked chord basically um and uh yeah it, it's 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 got a lot going for it but I, I don't know there's something very <sighs> what's the word what's the word it does this I Almost oppressive about this song. Um, there's something about the way that Lennon leans into the vocal, which I, I mean, I really like his voice here. I think it sounds really, really good. Um, but he's almost aggressive in the way that he delivers, uh, like "She's in love with me" and "I feel fine." Like he's kind of pushing his voice there, and it, it's it's kind of it's an odd contrast to to what is for particularly for Lennon, like a really bright lyric, um, and the riff kind of reinforces that a little bit. It's it's. It's up tempo, but it's not. It's not really bright. And again, if you compare it to either um, Day Tripper or Ticket to Ride, which are much kind of brighter, much kind of more trebly sort of riffs. There's something slightly, maybe oppressive isn't exactly the right word, but there's something slightly, I don't know, off kilter about it, or slightly, slightly boomy, or slightly bassy. It, it gives an interesting tension in the song, which I do really, really enjoy. Okay,
1: that's interesting. Um... I suppose one of the, the 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 things that people might almost have expected to go straight into is the uh, the elephant in the room, which is you know if you say I feel fine to uh, you know most people who are aware of it, not necessarily Beatles fans, or I suppose the Beatles fans would uh, would mention it as well. Is that people would would sort of go straight in and talking about the feedback, and yeah, I think the feedback is a stunningly in is whilst it might be important in the grand scheme of things, it's stunningly unimportant to the song itself but I wonder if the feedback could potentially set that tempo for you know that that sort of gritty growly uh, down dirty kind of um, kind of singing that it almost has uh, a heavier feel than perhaps the song uh, justifies but I also wonder if it's because it is very much a riff based song you know the riff came first everything was fleshed out from the riff there's no effectively no rhythm guitar here it's you know it's the riff and that's why it feels empty and sparse and then maybe you get to the point where the the voice needs to do more in order to um to compensate for um the how empty the rest of it sounds so there there could be something um there could be something in that but i mean you know the what we don't need to we've done occasionally um, where we've sort of got the the things that everybody knows that we're not really going to talk about all that much the feedback is is one of those (laughs) things you know there are there are many excellent Beatles podcasts out there and and many of them have spoken about you know the feedback in in that respect Um, I've kind of classed it as look at me I've done a clever accident Um, and you know what I find interesting about it is that they just use it at the start and then that's it. It's very much something that's that's talked about. Um, McDonald, for example, gives the um, uh, give it makes a reference to the Who's anyway, anyhow, anywhere, which is half of an absolutely fantastic song. But the difference between that and this is that the Beatles understand that the song is most important. I've said that before. Feedback the clever bit at the start, done out of the way. Let's get on with the song the feedback with townsend takes over halfway through the song it's it's you know the the guitar solo is is about noise rather than the notes and and so it, you know it's it's clever and it's interesting but it doesn't work for the song so you know there is there is that sense that um um you know the the feedback is useful to, to to recognize but actually the song is a much more important much more significant thing
0: yeah I would definitely go along with that and I agree with you about the fact it sets up this heavier feel for the song uh, which isn't something that any you know track released previous to this uh, could could uh, could lay claim to. The idea that its significance is in its deployment rather than in what it does to the song, I think is absolutely banging the money. And again, like obviously, you know, McDonald and The Who, but, you know, we can't not mention the kinks here as well, particularly yeah. um, You Really Got Me and, and uh, All Day and All of the Night, um, where these things are going to be on uh, developed much further.
1: I, mean, I quite like the, the noise that the likes of um, you know, Link Ray were making um, you know, five, six, seven years before, uh, yeah, whereas yeah. distortion, but but even then, it, it's sort of quite similar to the Townsend. Um, you know, it's not really a song; it's it's a riff and some some song effects. Yeah. You know, but which is fine. I mean, the the opening on Eiffel Fine is not integral to the song; it's an effect, and it's something that's created notoriety, which is um, which is you know which is useful for them. It, it certainly helps them to to stand out. Um yeah, I I was was I was trying to do a little bit of research on this and I found an interview with uh, How dare you with Jimmy I know, I know, sorry, with um with Jimmy Page. Um and you know, it was it was interesting. Um but he was because major session musician and you know wrote and produced a lot of records in you know the the mid sixties, really influential. Um and he was um you know he was talking about um a band called Fifth Avenue and a song called Just Like Anyone Would Do. Never heard of it. Okay so here's the thing when I, I copied and pasted um, from the interview Fifth Avenue's Just Like Anyone Would Do I found it wasn't a helpful search term as it brought up lots of hits for Donald Trump talking about shooting someone on Fifth Avenue. Really not useful. However, looked for, there's not much about the Fifth Avenue band either. And I have to say, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole here. This is where I went down the rabbit hole of Irish wedding bands. Um, and if you're not aware of the concept of Irish wedding bands, back in the, um, you know, um, well, I suppose before, the, maybe the 50s, 60s, 70s, there would be bands in Ireland who would, um, you know, much like, um, um, the, the I suppose, the band that Elvis Costello's dad was involved with. They'd go around and they'd play the latest hits. Um, or, or Jimmy Max band, for that matter. Okay, there you go. Um but it seems like they they kind of died out in in the eighties, um, and the the old show bands then turned into bands who were really professional, select bands who would go and play um, at weddings. And it's a big thing; it's a much bigger thing in Ireland, I'm sure, than it is in the UK, where we just tend to go with a with a DJ, um, you know. And some of them have some some pretty um, pretty impressive names. Um, but actually what I thought I would do is I'd just go there and have a look and see if any of them play any Beatles songs. Because if you think about it, you don't tend to hear that many Beatles songs. Um, Pink Champagne, who were the band a band of the year at the uh, 2023 Irish Wedding Awards, play I Saw her Standing There, Help, I Feel Fine, Get Back and Twist and Shout. And that was about the most that there were. But um, the oddest one with the vinyls who, along with playing Twist and Shout, Hard Day's Night, and I saw her standing there, play Come Together and Don't Let Me Down.
0: It's a quirky selection of songs at best. It,
1: it is a slightly quirky selection of songs, yeah. You'd, you'd be surprised, I suppose, what people might potentially dance to um, at a wedding. Twist and Shout is by far the most popular one, and it's technically not even a Beatles song, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll give them that. Um, but it was just that little reminder that, that you think of I Feel Fine as being this major, major song in in the canon. It's, it's like one of those tent poles, like Help and our Day's Night between um, I Want to Hold Your Hand and then, you know, what we're moving into with, say, Rubber Soul. But it's not really a song that you're going to dance to and it's not really a song that gets played very much. I think it's um, it's a little bit forgotten um you know so the likes of sax on fire um they're yeah, probably quite um quite within their rights to 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 you know focus on some others uh rather than than I feel fine anyway back to the um the jimmy page interview um and I thought I'd found something really really interesting because he was talking about um Clapton um picking up and on on feedback and and using it uh, he says, Eric was the first to evolve the sound with the Gibson and Marshall amps. He he should have total credit for that. I remember when we did I'm Your Witch Doctor, he had all that sound down. Again, I'm Your Witch Doctor was not a song that I knew at that point. It's uh, John May and the Bluesbreakers. Um Interestingly, it has um, uh, John McVie on bass. So that was quite the group. However, right. his no. argument isn't helped by the fact that that was recorded in 1965 and not 1964. So, um, yeah, okay, Um, Maybe maybe there's something of the memory going on there with with Jimmy Page. I'm I'm not going to ascribe too much uh, genius at this stage to what was a happy accident. But the feedback is something that I've said quite clearly is something that is talked about far too much. And I proceeded to talk about it. Guess what? Far too much top work there Thank you.
0: um i just as, as as a slight side note i just want to make it known to the world at large that there is a uh, a bagpipe band in scotland called the red hot chili pipers i just feel that everybody should know that um excellent well, stuff. and they're fr- they're fantastic obviously that that goes without saying um <laughs> shout out to the uh, to the piper boys um lovely right um yes I, I, the other thing i think that's interesting about the feedback and i promise this is the last thing i'm going to say about it is that it starts a tradition of finding more interesting ways of beginning songs. You know, the, we've had one or two songs which have had um, different ways of beginning, like the, the gunshot snare at the start of Any Time At All, or, you know, the count in, the one, two, three, four for I Saw Standing There, or whatever. Um, so there, there is a bit of history with the Beatles doing that. But, you know, this is going to all end in the Marseillaise at one point. So, you know, there's a lot more to discuss in this. But I think finding these interesting ways of starting your song does start to push that creativity. You know, one of the things which is often said about, you know, uh Beatles for sale sessions and and um I feel fine is that you know they were confident enough in the studio to start doing their own things now they didn't just need to have George Martin holding their hand and you know walking them down the road and you know things like that happy accident are one way of of that you know coming to the fore but at the same time it just opens up that slight possibility okay we don't need to start with just accounting we don't need to start with something which is just going to be a you know a you know a a quick riff or, or whatever it is and and I like the way that this, this song kind of starts that little template. So, yeah, that's it. I promise I've got nothing else to say about feedback.
1: So can I venture to maybe suggest that the opening, um, the intro and the outro are actually the best parts of the song?
0: Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. Uh, apart from the fact I now have the intro and the outro by the Bonzo Dog Doodo band stuck in my head. Um, excellent work. Thank you for that. Uh, it's a great song, obviously. But, you know, um, yeah. Yeah. Um... Oh love you ever think about that as we talk through the as we talk through the song and I'll get back to you there.
1: Fair enough, that's okay um yeah we we can do that, but it is worth pointing out that there is that that sort of element of of replication of the intro and the outro yeah you know, yeah that, that, but we could say to uh, um delve into your your world of pretentiousness it lends a kind of symmetry and cohesiveness. Uh, to To the whole thing,
0: an audio circular narrative to the whole piece.
1: Yeah, yeah, that'll do. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm so sorry. No, it's fine. It's fine. I'm, I'm happy to. Uh, I'm happy to go with that. Um, not that I completely understood it, but I'm happy to go with it. Um, but it does. It is another thing that that just marks them out. That, that experimentation at the start and at the end is important. And yeah, fair enough. They they might not need. Um, you know, I thought you were going to say when George Harrison, George Harrison, George Martin holding their hand, I thought, and leading them down the road. I thought you were going to maybe sort of throw in the Abbey Road and across the crossing or something, you know. But anyway, um, they've learned from him. They're clearly aware yes, of, of the importance of, of impact and ending in a way that is effective and memorable.
0: And, and well, and, and it's a conclusion, not a stop, which is an incredibly important yeah. difference.
1: Yeah, and, and I suppose then that leads us back to, to the riff. Um, and because the riff is everything, and there are quite a few other bands obviously working with that, that in 65, that John Mayall Bluesbreakers song, I'm Your Witch Doctor, is all riff, and it doesn't really go anywhere. It's It's just another opportunity for people to show how great they can play an instrument and how clever they are, but it doesn't really live in your memory in the way that a song like this does. This is much more, uh, dare I say, universal. Um, and, and it has influences, the the one, and most of these influences that, that people wouldn't recognise, the one that, that gets cited the most, because I think that Lennon himself was aware of it, was um, um, Bobby Parker. Um, and I suppose in fairness, it's it, it's it, the first few bars of it, are similar, but Bobby Parker's is much more atonal. It doesn't go anywhere. It's the 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 sound and not the notes. I think that you could sort of say has has some familiarity, or maybe you hear the first the first couple of, uh, maybe the first couple of bars and you think, oh oh that's uh, oh no 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 fair enough it's gone somewhere else now. I can see how it's it's um, ended up being different. So. Um, I don't think we necessarily need to to worry uh, Mr. Parker's solicitors too much, um, but I'm sure he's had enough conversations with them in his time and and maybe Mr. Sheeran has been able to reassure the estate of John Lennon that there isn't a case to answer.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, let's hope so. Uh, I do think it's interesting listening to the two side by side because the riff really does have a lot of familiarity the, the 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 Parker riff i mean it's 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 quite startling um but it's when you get through it that you feel the build in a completely different a much much bluesier direction one of the things about the the chords and i feel fine all five of them is that they're all just majors. It's D, C, G, A minor, and B minor. That's it. That's that's the only chords which are in this song. Um, whereas the Parker, it's it's all bluesy. It's all sevenths. It's, it's I mean, it's it's a good song, um, but it's it's structurally different, and so that feel that. tonality as you refer to it as you know fits that that grungier dirtier kind of blues sound whereas the the bright sort of melodic aspects to Lennon's riff suit those kind of major d c and g chords much much more comfortably um you know I mean for all that you know uh, we've mentioned this before but you know for all that McCartney gets credit as as the melodist of the group you know Lennon is perfectly capable of doing it and this riff is a great example of how he's been able to build on something that he's heard from somebody else before but also make it uniquely his and carry that main melody you know the um I hate to go back to horizontal melodic structures but the vocal in this the, the actual uh, melody of the vocal is pretty flat it's just it's just hovering around a few notes and the riff carries the main melody of the song and that's fine um, but it is a really good example of Lenin coming up with a great melody as a riff rather than as something that he's singing
1: so then, is it an example of Lennon writing a melody that suits his voice here? Because I, I think it is. Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm not the biggest fan. I've been working this out. I'm not the biggest fan of early Lennon singing. I, I'm I'm quite happy to to admit that um, that I like a lot more of um, his his singing. You know, the further we go through the Beatles uh, canon, and I think that could be because he's stopping doing covers. Uh, well, <laughs> nearly um, <laughs> stop doing covers. Yeah, watch where, this space. Where he's got to work within someone else's songwriting, and he's stopping writing songs that are effectively his versions of other people's songs. Where again, he's he's got that that big shift in the melody that he can't quite cope with. But I found that I I've got something in common with with John Lennon. Here you go. Excellent. Here we go. I must admit, this is probably one of those things that that everyone out there knew, and it's only through doing some um, some extra reading over the last couple of weeks that I've come across, or maybe I've only just started taking notice of it. The the fact that he hated his own his own voice, um, you know. So I'm in really really good company there. I I I, you know, dear listener, I don't listen back to these afterwards because I don't like the sound of my own voice. I let JG do all the editing. And so he has to listen to me drone on. Well, and suppose you do as well, um, but you have a choice not to download. He has to put these out. And so even if he's going to edit me out, he has to listen to me first. Um, and I think it was the um, the Womack biography of uh, George Martin that first drew my attention to it, where um, he refers to, to George Martin talking about how uh, Lennon would urge him to put all kinds of treatments on to do... You know whatever effects he could in order to, to change the sound of um, um, the sound of his voice, um, but he does seem to have had that insecurity for a long, long time. You know, uh, people were talking about it in the Imagine sessions as well, for example. So even though he got, in my my view, he got better at writing for it, that that insecurity um, never really went away. And there's there's a really good example of this. um, I'm not normally one to go and listen to the anthology uh, outtakes, but um, take one of this. It seems to be written in a different, or performed at least in a different key. And as a result, it is too high for him and you can hear him struggle. And I think that's an important thing that that he then recognises. Okay, right, well, let's put it in a key that is much more suited to me so I can sustain it all the way through. I gather as well he, he struggled to um, both play the riff
0: and sing because I can well imagine it's a really difficult riff to play well, even without trying to sing it at the same time.
1: Yeah, I say it. he's no Paul McCartney, is he? Wow, well, you know, get the feeling Paul could have done that blindfolded with uh, earplugs in, stood on his head with feet in custard. Um, but uh, you know, it's a lovely image, <laughs> yeah, it? a it? <laughs> um, but you know, I. I think it would have been interesting if they'd have um, kept the tapes rolling at this stage because I think from maybe help but certainly rubber soul onwards George Martin just has the tapes open and he's recording absolutely everything whereas I think at this stage um, dear listener correct me if I'm wrong or give me plaudits if I'm right either I'm quite happy with Um, I think at this stage they were just recording the tapes, stop rolling and then get the tape ready for the next one and then um, get going again. It would have been fascinating to to hear those conversations, you know, of, of Lennon perhaps saying, oh, okay, well, that didn't quite work. Well, why didn't that quite work? Um, and to go from there. But you know what? I think, i, mean, I, I got this sounds, you know, I, I'm desperately trying not to say he's getting better at singing, but his vocals are, um, in my view, definitely becoming clearer, more certain and more confident. Um, And let's face it, that's not because of the lyrics he's writing.
0: Well, I think it's also partly because of the competitive nature of the songwriting between him and McCartney. You know, he wants to be the person who's getting the a sides. He wants to be the one who's uh, leading the charge. And if he's going to be doing that, then he's got to be the one who's good enough to be able to do that. I think that's part of the the psychology behind it as well. And, you know, I, I mean, I definitely agree with you. I think he's becoming notably stronger as a vocal performer i think i have more uh sympathy towards early lennon vocals than you do but he is definitely getting better it's also a little bit of a chicken and egg situation you know as he gets better at writing songs his vocals become more confident as he becomes more confident as a vocalist he can start writing more interesting songs so you know the two kind of uh, feed back into each other and i think this song in particular is a good example of how he's developing as a songwriter i mean again structurally you know it's just you know it's just a bit of a verse and you know a bit of a bridge that's all it is but what's going on within that is is clearly you know quite different from really anything we had on the last album now i know obviously you've talked about the fact that this recorded more towards the end of um the beatles for sale sessions but if we're looking at this in terms of chronological release which you know we sometimes manage to stick to then you know it's it's a it's a noticeable shift on from anything on a hard day's night and that's that's a real sign of, of, of confidence. I know the, the, the tendency is to say maturity. I don't know that we're quite at that stage yet because I'm looking at the lyrics and not the, the M word isn't the one that's immediately jumping to mind. Uh, but certainly the confidence is there. I think there's no question that that's increasing.
1: Well, maturity, let's, let's just remind ourselves of, of how old they are at this stage. Well, yes. Yeah, so let's, uh, so was, was Harrison 21 yet? uh just maybe i want to say I Don't know um you know they they're certainly not i mean they're hardened veterans um but they're not exactly um you know long in the tooth
0: well quite um but yeah i mean that's 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 a, a tension which i think is going to again I'm not want to say too much about beatles for sale but i think that's one of the tensions which is going to play out in that album is is the way that the Uh, development of sophistication and yes, the M word, maturity um, sort of build but very inconsistently it's not not a single kind of unified straight line there there are bits which work incredibly well and which show just how far they've come and there's going to be one or two things which are not necessarily going to show that, but we'll get to them when we get to them
1: So would you take this song as being evidence of a happy John Lennon? Because after all, he feels fine.
0: I I don't know. Like I said, there's uh, a, a real tension between the kind of the weight of the song and the lyric of the song. And I like that tension within the song. I think it, I think it is effective. I wouldn't read too much necessarily into this lyric. Uh, you know, by, by Lennon's own admission, this was, I've written a riff quick knockout song around it. So I doubt that there was much forethought beyond uh you know i need something to sing alongside it but it's interesting i suppose to have a lyric like this which is noticeably more positive dare i say slightly mccartney-esque in its outlook but i don't know psychologically do you want to say that do you think that squares up with the rest of beatles for sale fine Mm, fine fine is probably an acceptable adjective yes i
1: mean i mean it's not so much that In, in terms of uh um, you know, if we were look at scaling, um, you know, I'd say fine is probably a six out of ten, maybe.
0: Yeah, that seems reasonable. That seems reasonable. All right. I mean, he he
1: does feel things quite a lot throughout his uh, his Beatles oeuvre. Um, you know, it's it's not that lot. it's a step up from how in a Holiday's Night he felt all right, for example, um, and definitely an improvement from There's a Place. Uh, from Please Please Me where he felt down low and blue. Um okay, but then also on the, I, I Wanna Hold Your Hand, um he um he felt happy inside. But then it's then nice. again on help he'll be feeling down. And on the word he knows what he feels must be right. And so there's there's a lot of feeling going on in this period, but a long way from now he'll feel the wind blow on Digger Pony. <laughs> so we'll, we'll get there we, we'll get a little bit more variety in, in how he feels
0: eventually I think it's, it's just one of those do, do those, you think that's a cosmic moment or do you think he farted I, I, I
1: definitely think there's there's uh, some flatulence going on there and I, I, I think it's not to be critical um, of, of our Mr. Lennon I think it's more just that reminder that these are just words you know they are words that fit um, and when we in the next episode we'll have a slightly different conversation about a couple of things that McCartney is trying to do in terms of, um, perhaps even go as far to use the word enjambant, maybe not. Um, but he's, he's, he's trying to do something a little bit different um, in She's a Woman, even though I don't think he's terribly successful. And in fact, it contains one of his worst rhymes. Wait for it, folks. have got another fortnight before you get the joys of that. But yeah, I, you
0: could probably work it out.
1: Yeah, but I, I think because... Um, you, know, you see, you're doing it again with the song titles. Stop just it. coincidence. Yes. It's just yeah. coincidence, I swear. In my life, I've never been so insulted. Right, okay. Um, 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 where were we? Yeah, no, I, I just think it's it's very easy um, with John Lennon for people to ascribe too much meaning when what this is is another great pop song.
0: That's fair enough. That's fair enough. I promise I will try to stop uh, stop using song titles. Uh, do you think then that this is just a tossed off lyric? Do you think that there's anything behind it beyond that? Because you asked me that question, so I'm throwing it back at you.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think it's a bunch of words that sound great and, and maybe it, it vaguely fitted in with a, a mood that he felt that day, but it's so joyfully banal as to, to have all meanings and none, which is the essence of, of great pop, really, isn't it? It, it, it kind of works because you can ascribe to it whatever you happen to be feeling. It can be a case of it could be something that picks you up when you're down or, or keeps you up on high if you're feeling great, you know, because you you pick out the key words. You don't listen to every single word. It's not a narrative that you're following through. It's a bunch of words that sound really good alongside a melody and a riff that sounds really good and it kind of works there's not really anything in there that jars so it makes for a it makes for you know a good product an overall product it's got character and personality rather than than class
0: that's an interesting way of putting it and not one that i'm going to in any way disagree with
1: okay good right what's next um, <laughs> um so, that's one way
0: to dead end the conversation. Well, well, it is a bit.
1: I suppose we could we could talk a little bit about um the instrumentation. You know, you've you've got an opportunity to talk about how absolutely stonkingly brilliant Ringo is on this.
0: Yeah, which he is. I mean, there's no question about it. Um a lot of the energy of the song is is absolutely coming from, from the right honourable Mr. Starr. Uh it's it's um It's a bit of a shame because I'm aware that this is something which is mentioned in in the McDonald book as well, but it's not actually the best produced song that the Beatles have ever produced, and and Ringo is kind of the one that suffers a bit from that the most. But he's still still at the top of his game. Um, One of the things that I've really enjoyed about doing this podcast is going back and sort of rediscovering a lot of that kind of early material, which I'm sort of familiar with enough to know, but not necessarily, you know, in the way that I know Sgt. Pepper or The White Album or whatever. And I have absolutely and completely fallen in love with A Hard Day's Night as an album, way more than with The Beatles or, or Please Please Me. I absolutely adore that album. Um, you were mentioning before about revising scores. I think one or two of mine will be floating upwards, not downwards. Okay. Um, I've, I've really come to love it and 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 you know I've been playing a lot of beatles songs on, on guitar of late as well and and that helps to sort of inform my opinion about them as well in, in terms of the way that they're they're constructed um but you know ringo was one of the absolute Stars of that album, if you'll excuse what was not meant to be a pun, but has unfortunately turned out to be one. Um, and his work here is just continuing on at the same kind of level. You know, he's really, really on top of his game here. There's so much, yeah, power and energy derived from what he's doing. And if he isn't best served by the production, and I definitely think it's fair to say that he's not, it still manages to come through, which is an achievement in and of itself.
1: A couple of things that I, I think. We should start talking more about the production because I'm I'm starting like like yourself listening to these uh, these songs a little bit more closely. I'm starting to come to opinions about the production. Opinions, you say? Opinions, possibly even views. Wow. Okay. Um, then and, you know, and and I think that's something that I think we can we can definitely you know return to because I think that I agree with you um but yeah no in in, in terms of, of of ringo on this despite the sad absence of any cowbell which which is which is a real shame um mm. I think that there's a there's a comment in um, the McDonald book that that struck me he says that it's his energy star's energy that lifts the track for instance coming out of the middle eights at 54 seconds and one minute 50. It's unfortunate the production parks him far left in the studio spectrum, were actually, yeah, that that is a, a real um issue. But actually, for me, it's the the little um fill that he plays at 122 at the end of the guitar solo to take the song back in that I really like. And that's that's the moment where I thought, oh okay, yeah, you can see there's that there's a bit of a powerhouse.
0: Yeah, it's a lovely join yeah. there. Yeah, I completely agree. Have
1: you listened to the um well, it says it's the isolated drum track for this but actually it's the drum and and bass as well effectively it's the um you know the, the left side really um have you listened to that because that's that yeah yeah that's a really interesting thing to listen to not just because of uh the incredible things that Ringo's doing but the fact that for me perhaps more than than a lot of the songs that we've listened to McCartney has really put some effort into that bass line. There's a proper bit of walking bass going yeah, on yeah. there. Um, and, you know, that's something that possibly doesn't get spoken about enough with regards to this song. There's, you know, there's really that sense. And and I, I kind of got a feeling, I'm, I'm, I read it somewhere, I can't remember where. Um, if I do remember, I'll, I'll make sure it goes on, i you know, credit it where I found it. That At this point, McCartney is much more aware of the fact that he could turn the bass up um, and that he needed to turn the bass up a bit and he actually liked the sound of the bass and was pushing for it more um, in terms of um, being able to hear it on the final recordings and you can see why it's not just something that is driving the rhythm it's something that is helping you know with that that counter melody that then accentuates the melody as well and my god that almost sounds technical
0: well it's interesting you say that because one of the things that i think is also true of uh, hard days night as an album is how much effort mccartney is putting in and doesn't necessarily get that much credit for and i think that is partly because the production tends to squash the bass down a bit also because the hofner isn't the loudest bass guitar in the world i mean eventually he's going to shift to the rickenbacker and the bass will become much more prominent but if you listen again if you listen to isolated kind of bass and drums for something like uh any time at all um when i get home like there's there's some really amazing oh and tell me why tell me why he's got a great walking bass line um and there's a lot of really, really good work going on there that I kind of agree though, that he doesn't get an awful lot of credit for it tends to be the later songs once the once the Rickenbackers come in um, and the Hoffner is, 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 is uh, more sidelined. Um, that kind of gives that that emphasis but also you know it's it's that thing about you know recording uh or kind of any kind of production tends towards improvements in quality so studio quality gets better we move from two track to four track eventually up when we get up to abbey road to eight track you know there's there's many more possibilities uh with what can be done in terms of the physical equipment is that's getting used um when it comes to i feel fine i completely agree it's got a really cracking bass line and it just kind of gets squashed out Fair enough
1: i mean this this is this is starting to be a bit weird i have said that you know i like the opening i like the the outro i like lennon singing ringo's drumming fantastic paul's bass amazing we'll talk about the the guitar solo in a moment the lyrics really really work for me and and yet and also i've said that it's a song that isn't played enough and then perhaps it's underappreciated and yet here i am also saying that i'm i'm a bit too familiar with it well, perhaps I <laughs> perhaps I I need to revisit my opinion because it started to sound like I was familiar with the song and and how it went, but actually now that I've broken it down, um, you know a little bit more, I'm getting even more out of it. Um, so maybe I'm going to revise my um, my score. Mm, interesting. interesting well uh, you know
0: yeah. being able to uh see these songs in a different light is like i said before one of the pleasures of doing this podcast you get to uh you get to reappreciate what you uh, what you think because you know it's not it's not just a song that exists somewhere in your memory the last time you know you heard it in asda or whatever you know it's something that that um you know actually when you take it down oh actually there's a lot of really good stuff in this when it's it seems sort of comparatively Trivial. I do think it's interesting how, how um, you know, for a song that shifted quite so many units, it kind of is a little bit kind of forgotten. You know, it, it not forgotten can't possibly be the right word for a song like this, or indeed for any real song by the Beatles, I suppose. But it's like, yeah, in the grand scheme of things, like even, I don't know, even like We Can Work It Out is probably better remembered, better exposed than, than I Feel Fine. It, but I, I think it's interesting as well, because I, I feel fine... Especially in the context of how we're doing this, how we're approaching the Beatles material, it feels like a a start. Like we've we've definitely gone through a phase with the first three albums, and and Beatles for Sale is going to be kind of the next phase, and especially since we just came off the back of the long Tall Sally EP, which I know we shouldn't have done, but okay, well never mind, whatever. Um, but uh, you know, like like you know, and it, it felt kind of plodding, it felt exhausted, it felt ground down, and I feel fine. Kind of feels like you know what. We've done that. We're going to go away and do something else now, something better, something more interesting. And I know Beatles for Sale is the knackered album. Again, we'll get to that. But this still feels like it feels like some kind of punctuation, whether you want to call it a full stop in the past or whether you want to call it a capital letter for the future. It, it feels like something, I don't know, I realise yeah, capital letter is a punctuation. I have no idea whatsoever. Words are just coming out of my mouth. but no, as no, long no, as keep I keep going. doing I, that, a recording I want, time I, will be up. I want
1: to hear how you're going to describe the semicolon.
0: Oh, that's, that's a, I've always thought the semicolons is a great band name and I fully intend to use it <laughs> at some point. <laughs> uh, all right, pick pick the punctuation you want to use. But I, I. it does feel like a real move away from those first three kind of more straightforward, more rock and roll-based albums. That's not a criticism. Like I said, I've completely fallen head over heels in love with, with A Hard Day's Night as an album. But this is something different. This is something more.
1: Yeah, and yet you have to start at A in order to get to Z, don't you? So you know, yeah. they they are it's the early part of the Beatles alphabet. And here we're now into the F's and Gs <laughs> you know. I think we probably
0: stretched this about as far okay. as it's likely so to go. We're
1: about forty five minutes in and um, what who haven't we really mentioned so far?
0: Uh, well, we haven't really mentioned uh, the right honourable Mr. Harrison that, no, that much either. And,
1: um, you know, if people really did want to get a hold of us, they probably would want to get a hold of us and and shake us up and down and say, come on, surely this song is all guitar. Well, yeah, but then on, on stage when they're miming, you can see that it's John that's playing the riff, isn't it? He very much feels like he owns that riff.
0: Hmm.
1: That George owns the guitar solo, and um, what do you make of that?
0: It's interesting. I know Lennon has been, you know, yeah, you know, he said on record that he would never play uh, a guitar solo if he thought George could do it better, and he's very upfront about the fact that, um, you know, George Harrison is a better guitarist than than he was. Uh, so it 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 works for the song. It's almost. I can't believe I'm going to use this word to describe this song, but it's almost egalitarian. It feels like everybody is kind of doing the the exact thing they should be in the song. Nobody's kind of hogging the limelight. Nobody's kind of grabbing what, you know, the glory or whatever. Like, like I really love George Harrison's guitar solo in this. I think it's great. He's, he's clearly the right person to do that job. I'm sure Lennon could do a good job of it. I'm sure he'd make a good fist of it, but he's let... Um, Harrison do it because he's the one that can produce the best solo for this song Lennon is owning the riff that's fine I'm sure he's the best person for that McCartney obviously on bass and, and Ringo and drums everybody is doing exactly what they need in service of the material okay maybe egalitarian isn't exactly the word but still it it feels it feels right for the song I, th- I think Harrison is really really impressive and again it's a move away from his kind of um pastiche solos that we've had in the past that it feels like a George Harrison guitar solo not George Harrison doing something that's a bit like Carl Perkins or or whatever
1: feel, it feels like a solo of two halves even though it's only a very short one the first part where he is playing something akin to a traditional solo and then the second half where he's trying to find a way to get back into the song and really needs Ringo to bring him in and And I think it's, it's something that he'll he'll get right on a ticket to ride Mm. where, you know, the way he links back into the song is absolutely fantastic. Remind me of that when we get to it, in case I've completely forgotten I said that and I start to criticise the solo. But it really, really works there. Here, it without Ringo, perhaps it would be a little bit more more awkward. But I think it's just another sign that they're doing something a little bit different in here.
0: Yeah, I think it definitely is. And firstly, just a small sidebar: I will in no way allow you to either forget nor criticize the little that little solo on um, "Ticket to Ride." I've been teaching myself to play that very recently. Oh, it, it's a, it's 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 a pain to combine with the rhythm, but it just like doing that really helps to uh, emphasize just how good that is. But again, that's it's that thing. Everybody's doing exactly what they need to in service of of this song and those those ways that Ringo can pull the song back together like you mentioned the little fills earlier on like that's that's his skill that's what he's so so good at and again something I think you know there's a lot of people who, who I think now do really appreciate what a good drummer he is but those little moments I don't know that he maybe necessarily gets as much credit as he should for them and he is very very good at them it's just a, a, a perfect little slide back into what we need you know it, and, and Harrison does the same thing on, on guitar and it just all Clicks together.
1: I suppose if we were, um, you know, properly detailed about this, we'd also have an in-depth discussion about the uh, the exact guitars that were used here. But
0: yeah, um, no, you're all right.
1: Um, that's fine. Uh, there, there are other podcasts that, that talk about that, and um, no doubt they talk about it and actually sound like they know what they're talking about. Whereas I would just be saying that's not something we've ever troubled ourselves no, with. I would just be saying names and numbers. Um, but there you go. However. The harmonies, quite happy to talk about the harmonising that goes on here. And I think they work because they're selective. It's not over the top. It's not consistent. Mm. It, it doesn't overwhelm the song. Um, and, you know, harmonies, again, it will be a theme I'll pick up on time and time again as, as we um, as we head towards the, uh, at the end of the 60s, because it is something that most of the time the Beatles do really, really well. And a lot of the time, it's something that other bands do really, really badly. Funnily enough, the, um, the Who song that uh, MacDonald mentions, um, they do a really good call and respond on on the chorus there that works very, very well with John Entwistle and Pete Townsend singing a slightly higher register than, than Roger Daughtry. That works really, really well. And I didn't realise that that song was on, because um, I'm not a massive Bowie fan, that's on Bowie's pin-ups. Um, yeah, yeah, as yeah. Well. But um, but on here, say for example, you know we've we've got the um, you know the harmony on she's so glad and and it's good, but then you know she's so glad she's telling the world that that they stop with the, the singing the words, but she's telling the word in the background and they're doing the ooze instead and it works as it allows us to then focus on John with something behind him softening his tone. It's incredibly effective. So even from the early days of the Beatles Alphabet or the uh, the full stop of the past, um, they they've evolved and and developed their harmonies, um, which is really good. I was listening this morning. Why you happen? Why you need to know this, dear listener? I don't know. I was I was happened to, to needed to be in Wincanton this morning for something to do with work. Driving back, listening to. Um, um, Stuart McConey interview Simon Pegg on Six Music because that's how hip we are. Um and he was he was picking some songs. Actually, his I think it's a feature they call it first, last, and everything. So, you know, the first song you remember, the last song you bought, and the one that stays with you. The one that stays with you is um here, there and everywhere, which I thought was, you know, a really good choice. But the the first one he remembers from about 75, not obviously when it was originally released, but when it for some bizarre reason hit the charts was um, um, Laurel and Hardy singing the Trail of the Lonesome Pine. Now in some respects the chorus of that is what I regard as being proper harmonising because you've got two people singing the same words but with melodies that kind of work together but are, are radically different. It's that kind of harmonising that I, I think is is really interesting and really effective. So well done, Beatles, for um, for mimicking elements of Laurel and Hardy. And thank you, Simon Pegg, for bringing it to my attention.
0: Fantastic. Well, I, I think I can say with some degree of confidence that Harmonies will be a subject that we return to in the future. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, they're very, very effectively deployed here. And they're done as, um, you know, a support rather than a dominant feature and that's also been one of the things about the harmonies that we've uh, we've heard on earlier tracks is that they tend to uh, they tend to be really kind of up front they tend to be uh well if you think of something like um oh i don't know the end of uh twisting shout and the build there or whatever you know there there are harmonies but they're they're very kind of dramatic and they're powering that part of the song here they're just supporting lennon's lead vocal, and they're very, very effectively deployed for that.
1: To give George um, um, another mention, um, just in case you feel he's not been mentioned enough, in one of the two video clips that they made for it, in this one being the, the famous Ringo on a bike clip, there's an um, quite an early shot of George really just deliberately getting the words wrong while singing into um, um, a punch ball. Um, and I don't quite know what he's, he's singing, um, but it definitely bears absolutely no relation to to what's on the backing track um god bless him um so clearly he thought the whole thing was a was a bit of an elaborate wheeze um and you know who could blame him it's um it's a pretty odd video clip for uh for many many reasons um but quite a famous one because you know it's got ringo on a bike
0: what more could you ask for for a video clip
1: I know it's, it's interesting there's there's different ideas about that as well I, I sort of got it into my head that perhaps it's just that um, directors in the 60s where they weren't playing live struggled to know what to do with drummers and, and occasionally if you've got um, Sky there was a tweet by um, um, one of the guys from the Nothing Is Real podcast where he made a reference to um channel that's on sky that basically plays non-stop 60s hits in fact there's a 60s a 70s and an 80s channel but you find that that with the 60s and the 70s it's about the same 30 songs you know round and around and around because there really isn't that much footage um available apart from when they're playing um you know um simon and garfunkel singing a song from the 60s but in the 80s you know they do that kind of thing too um they do some some weird things with drummers on there But actually, there is a suggestion, and I think this comes from um, the Ronald Ritter book, The Beatles on Film, where he's talking about the fact that that the band were trying to be a little uh, visually striking and trying to be a little funny. Um, So rather than feeling sorry for Ringo, it looks like he may actually have been potentially involved in in the framing. So um, the quote here talks about how... um, um, so, it's the band bunched up together, the fans wanting to see the favourite Beatles, uh, the favourite Beatle, a Ringo, and the kind of shot uh, um, where they can see him is easier without him sitting behind a, um, um, a big drum kit. So, instead, sitting on an exercise bike. So, um, you know, it's a sitting down. So, they note that the drums are sitting down instrument, the exercise bike involves sitting, but at least Ringo's head is at a position that's not much lower than the rest. So it could be that it's it's a deliberate thing. Um, you know, I still think it's a bit of an odd thing. There are, there are a few, aren't there, where he's... The others are playing their guitars and, and he's not drumming. I think Paperback Writers, uh, yeah. another one as well. Um, you know, but that's fine. Hey, i tell you what, fun fact. I don't know why I, I ended up looking this up. <laughs> did you know there is an e-bike that's called the Rayvolt Ringo? I did
0: not know that, but I do know.
1: Okay, um... I've I've got no idea, by the way, if um, it's named, I, I'm not, unable to find out if it was named after Ringo. Uh, my my um, internet searching is, is not that good, but I, you know I you can see why I went down that rabbit hole finding out if there's because you'd have thought that some exercise bike manufacturer would have uh, uh, wanted to be able to use that clip of Ringo and then perhaps have something of progression of Ringo in the modern day. Maybe he is a brand ambassador for something else. Um, there's bike Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> there you go. Um, but that, that that clip is is a bit of an odd one. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but you know George is dressed very differently to the others. Yeah. And the other three all seem to have been dressed like the the milk tray man uh, from those adverts of the sixties. Paul looks like he's desperate to sing every single line and just is working so hard to stop himself when he's not meant to be singing. Um, and his bass playing is oddly reminiscent of what will become the signature bass playing style of a Mr. Dirk McQuickley.
0: Yes. Well, there's another discussion that we're going to have to have at some point in the future. But uh, yeah, it's certainly, uh, what's the word, distinctive, shall we say?
1: Yeah, it's that kind of two finger. Um, yeah, it's um, it's very, uh, very odd, exaggerated um, and and. You know, notice me, yeah, yeah, and it makes me wonder if if Herrick Idol was was aware of that when he was uh, playing Dertma quickly or whether he just was mining very badly. I haven't decided which um by the way, I wasn't aware of the um the second video that was that was made uh, at the same time uh, for um I feel fine, which is. The truly awful video of the band eating fish and chips. And yeah, well, you wouldn't think that, that was a difficult thing. I
0: <laughs> think that was a difficult thing to put together. That was banned for, or not banned. It was unavailable, let's say, for a very long period of time. The, the, yes. the
1: implication is that Brian Epstein didn't want anyone seeing it, and you can understand why. Yeah, that's correct. Why. Um, at least John does have a go at miming from time to time, and um, yeah, occasionally. George has a go on the exercise bike. Um, so there you go. There's another mention of George, folks. Um, Excellent Surely we've hit our quota by now
0: I think we have Yeah I mean we're just about to pass the one hour mark I think George has had his due
1: Okay so um, Right another hour on a song that is Less than three minutes
0: Yeah we're doing pretty good on that front Right um, Shall we score it then Oh right Have you got somewhere Are Are you off to the cinema to see Mission Impossible? Oh, no. No, I'm not. Um, if you've got more to contribute, please contribute away. No,
1: no, no, that's fine. I I, I think much like those Georgian Ringo on the exercise bike, we've come to a natural stop.
0: I think we have, yes. And sadly, I don't have any fish and chips next to me to enjoy, or at the very least, not yet. Not yet. So, go on. Go on. What do you want to give it?
1: Ooh, um, yeah. You see, I... I think I'm going to keep it after in line. all that. After all that, I'm going to keep it in line with with a hard day's night, and and I'm going to give it a walk, a walkingly, a whoppingly brilliant seven out of ten. Which I know might sound slightly seven. disappointing to some. Um, it is a work of of high quality, but I've still got to leave myself some eights and nines and tens.
0: I'm a little divided on this one. Whether to give it seven or six and a half. I think I'll give it seven.
1: Why would you give it six and a half? That's that's mean.
0: That is mean. Well, I'm not giving it six and a half. I'm giving it seven. So I'm not being mean. I'm being nice.
1: Okay. Okay. Fair enough.
0: Good. Good. But you're being honest. And that's that's the most
1: important thing.
0: Well, yeah. Unless I edit this bit out. Which, guys, nobody will ever know it happened. Um, right. I think we can uh, probably, uh, yes. Uh, anything else to add? Bye. OK, that's excellent. Right, fine. Uh, you can really get a hold of us. We are BeatlesStuffology at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at Beatles underscore ology. You can find my blog at www.jgmacquarie.scot and you can read Andrew's writing at www.stuffology.co.uk. Please also check out my other podcast, Talking Trek to You, where a noob and an expert, who is apparently me, go through the original Star Trek series episode by episode. Please like, rate, and review us on whatever podcatcher you're using, so that more people can find the show, and more people are finding the show. So these things matter. If you find this show and you like it, give us a wee review because it really is helping us to build momentum, and we would be greatly appreciative of that gesture. Now, next episode, it's time to flip the single, and um, yeah, that means uh, that means like uh, Andrew mentioned earlier on, we have to deal with one of the worst rhymes in uh, popular culture Uh, as we talk about she's a woman but until then keep listening